Welcome to the Sum of It All Teaching Math to Multilingual Students podcast. I'm Audrey Mendeville, along with my colleague Mark Alcorn from the San Diego County Office of Education. And this season, we're exploring the book Teaching Math to Multilingual Students, Positioning English Learners for Success by Catherine Beachaval, Aaron Smith, Lina Trigos Carillo, and Rachel J. Pinnell. Transcripts to our podcast are always available for you in the episode notes on your favorite platform. This week, we're going to chat about chapter nine, use your discourse strategically to enhance multilingual learners opportunity to learn. And it begins just with different kinds of discourse that we use. Mark, how would you start us off? Well, Audrey, I'd like to start us off by how the authors really set up how we might define discourse. And I thought it was a really clever way to start off the chapter and really thinking about discourse, whether it be oral or written, and how it might be used to think about extending beyond single word or short phrases to take into account lengthier spoken or written communication. And Audrey, I really appreciated that distinction because what it would do to me in terms of my thinking about my own classroom, it would help me think about this definition as a guide. In other words, are my students being provided opportunities to engage in authentic oral written discourse as I think about recent lessons, or are they primarily giving short responses to my questions? And so I really liked it as like a filter, as like a way to, to think about it and, and reflect. Yeah, it's a great point. You know, it it's interesting how we had kind of different takes on this first section. The first section to me, um, and I appreciate your point about that, is was around teacher voice. Like the thing mm -hmm. that jumped out at me was this idea of like, um, what, how do you sound when you talk to your students versus when you talk to other people? Um, mm. And how noticeable that is sometimes when you hear a recording of yourself or students see you in different contexts, like they see you talking to your family and then they hear you talking in class and they make a point to like say, that's ah. not how you talk to us, right? Um, yeah. And I made this connection for us in hearing ourselves speak through the podcast. So listening to our recordings to make the transcripts and to check that the audio came out okay in this, in the our episodes, like I noticed all kinds of patterns of speech that I have and that you have, and we've noticed them about each other, right? Um, uh, I don't know what you're <laughs> talking about, Audrey. Uh. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, I'm going to say, yeah, no. Cause that's one of mine. Um, it's super <laughs> interesting that like, we don't always have a chance to stop and listen to those. And so even in this chapter, they offer a video that you can use a QR code to check out. Um, it's called on um, page 123. And it's about how we pronounce things. And this brings back super funny memories for me of when I moved to Iowa for college and immediately people being able to tell me that they thought I was from California. And I was like, well, how do you know that? And they would say, it's the way you talk. You have a Californian <laughs> wow. accent. And, you know, I live in my little world bubble of being from Southern California. I didn't think we talked different than anyone else. Um, the people <laughs> in the movies talk like us. We sound like right. people on TV. And yet to other people from other areas, um, it was very distinctive for them. So I thought mm. it was super interesting to think about, about that. But now if we bring that into the context of what we talk about, which is math classrooms, mm -hmm. like what are the patterns of discourse that we might hear that would tell us we're listening into a math class in the same way that people said, oh, I'm listening to a Californian or an Iowan or someone from the East Coast. Like, what are the things we might hear in a math discussion or a math class that would really trigger us and be like, that's math we're talking about? 
Yeah, that's that's super interesting, Audrey. And I think I think that that's changed over the years uh, in, ter in terms of our intent. Uh, I think about um, when I started teaching and maybe what I might refer to as a more traditional math class. And it's it's interesting how you think back to where it's a very much an interchange between a teacher and one student. Mm -hmm. And so it's this teacher asks question, either calls on student, student raises their hand, and then there's a response, and then sometimes a follow-up with the teacher with that individual student. And, um, and you kind of think about like, so why is math discussion so hard to cultivate in classrooms? And I think it's partly, Audrey, because like we're so hardwired from that, from that traditional model of how the teacher is dictating some body of knowledge. And the idea is for the kids to say that back to the teacher. Yeah. Um, and there's just not much to talk about. <laughs> no, I think that is such, I think that's such the perfect point. So like in the idea of like Ferris Bueller and thinking about the teacher in that classroom, asking right? a question yeah. and expecting an answer, like that is to some degree what's in our brains about what we expect to have happen in math class. So to break those expectations and to do something different, we're working not only on the difficulties of trying something new, but breaking bad habits or bad expectations. So super interesting. The authors talk about there's these three ideas about discourse that they share with us. One is that there isn't just one English and mm. um, they give great cases to how there's different English Englishes around the world and, and in different spaces, um, that there's a lot of variation by context, which we've talked about just a little bit, like the teacher in the classroom versus the teacher at home. Um, but there's even these variations by individual and or purpose. Yeah, I, I think it's I think it's so smart that you brought up purpose, Audrey, because I think in today's math class, our goal in interactive discourse is different than a more traditional discussion in which the teacher is asking those individual student questions that I was referring to. And I was reminded recently of this, this dichotomy of this thinking of, is, are, we, are we working on performance or learning for mm -hmm. students? Mm -hmm. Like, is that discussion, is it performance-based or is it based toward the purpose of learning? And I think that uh, sometimes it's, it, it, it's, we get stuck on in this performance mode. And I think for students, what that looks and sounds like is that if I'm called on or if I raise my hand, it's about my teacher evaluating whether my answer is correct um, uh, or I'm, I, well, it's really just, it's really just evaluating <laughs> my answer is correct, right? Yeah. And so there, so there's, I mean, we could impact this for a long time, Audrey, right? Like there's, there's the, the pressure that that puts against the student because it's not like they're sharing their thinking many times. It's, I have to be able to, I have to be able to share what I think is in my teacher's head at any given moment. And that is where my value of my comment is based. My, and so um, I think back to purpose, if our purpose is more about uh, having students interact with each other and have their ideas shared and evaluated and affirmed and those things leading to something greater and more powerful. Um, that's, I think, where the learning and the, and the collaborative learning takes place. And in, in my estimation, that's what we want to cultivate in our discourse in our classrooms. Yeah, that's such a great point because that learning discussion is gonna sound so much different than performance question answering um, patterns that we have in our class. 
You know, another point the authors brought up that I found super interesting just as they opened this chapter was around idioms. And they brought this up and they said, idioms position inadvertently sometimes people who do not understand them as outsiders. Um, and so as you're talking about language and the importance of like how it might look in a class, this made me just think about all the idioms and colloquial expressions that we throw about in our classroom all the time. There it is, throw about, um, like we're not literally throwing them, but like right. what's like those phrases that come out um, and how do we help position our students um, with as much um, authority and power and, and privilege as we possibly can, as opposed mm. to inadvertently, it sounds oh, like in yeah. this case, putting them in a place of feeling um, less than or not as um, not as an insider, right? And it's right. super interesting, even this idea of insider or outsider, because I distinctly remember in the process of learning Spanish um, and French that like when I finally learned idioms, I felt like I had made it right? Like I was in the in crowd. And I know people say you got to dream in the language to really be like fluent. Oh, right, but yeah. to me, it was like hearing someone use an idiom and knowing that it was not the actual like meaning of the words, but it was this phrase, this, this language that people use to describe something else that I finally felt like I had made it. And so I really, this part really resonated with me on, on like how it positions us as feeling like we're part of a group or not part of a group. I, I love that point, Audrey. I, I did not think of that at all when I was reading it. I'm so glad that you made the point because it it really it really makes it much bigger. And, and thanks a lot. That's that's so interesting. Uh, it also reminds me of a quote that um, the authors have, and it goes, the discourse the discourse a teacher uses can enhance or constrain multilingual learners' opportunities to learn. And teachers can purposefully change their discourse to facilitate learning. So when I hear you talking about idioms, whether I use them or if I don't, or if I use it and unpack it with students, um, there's, there's so much importance to those decisions because of this idea that I can enhance or constrain their opportunities. I think that is, is just so well put. Um, and you know, the other thing around that whole dynamic with um, what we do as teachers and what moves we make is it has big consequences because multilingual learners will not always ask the teacher to clarify a meaning that they happened to um, to share. In the in the text, uh, the authors use a, a university observation uh, where they notice that students did sometimes ask for clarifications. Um, perhaps more often because they were university students, they had a different dynamic in, the, in their classroom. Um, but I really, I think it's really important for us as educators to be reminded that the onus of responsibility lies with us as the educator to anticipate the barrier. That's, that's where I just think this is just such a nice connection to universal design for learning. Because if I consider all the barriers that any of my students might face in doing classroom discourse, in this interactive discourse, as I've suggested, then I need to think of what opportunities I can make available for all my students so they can opt in and use those to reduce barriers. And so um, I just think this is so critical because we can't just count on the fact that, oh, everybody's gonna just raise their hand and stop me from in the middle of the lesson every time that I make a misstep and don't anticipate a barrier, right? Yeah, 
I really, I like that, Mark. I, you know, I hadn't thought about that as the connection with UDL and I appreciate that and thinking about how we anticipate those barriers and um, what we might do ahead of time to design it so that every student has access. It does make me think a little bit about curiosity and that like, I know as a secondary teacher, I had to stay curious about the language my students were using because the, mm. the hip or cool language and how we describe things and oh, the right. colloquialisms that they throw around are forever changing, right? And so if yeah. I don't feel, if I feel like I have to have a certain status or a certain posturing of myself that I can't ask, what does that mean? Like, what do you mean when you say that? Um, if we haven't built up a good enough relationship that they feel comfortable sharing it with me, um, then I don't, I don't have access to the language they're using and vice mm. versa, right? So if right. I don't- right help that relationship foster and at times stop and explain why I use a phrase that I use. Like we've lost a whole bunch of learning potential there generationally and otherwise um, uh, linguistically wise. So I appreciate that. Great point. Uh, so the authors continue with talking about the importance of teacher discourse. And one of the big sections of this, I felt like was this idea of posing questions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, this is not new to us. We know from the NCTM work that posing purposeful questions matters. Um, they say here that probing students' mathematical explanations can foster mathematical thinking and increase student engagement. Um, these are things that we've read and know to be true. Um, but I thought what was super interesting about this section is that a it was a like just a, a reminder, like straight up, like boldly in my face that we can inadvertently, again, position students as incompetent when we don't allow them to answer more challenging questions in mm -hmm. class. And that our students notice which students we ask more simplistic questions to and which students we ask more challenging questions to and whether or not that's a consistent thing, right? Um, and I think that really builds a um, false identity for the student and for themselves perhaps, but for their peers of their colleagues about who, they, who these students are as mathematicians um, and as students. And so it's just something to be just super aware of is kind of that, the difficulty and the challenging questions, who we ask those of and who we perhaps scaffold too much and ask easier questions and what that means for their identity as a mathematician. Great points, Audrey. I, I think this is a huge equity issue. I think that, um, and I think we talked about this a little bit in the last episode is that the students have a very fine-tuned radar um, in terms of how we as educators interact with them. Mm -hmm. and, and they notice these things. They notice that the student next to me was uh, asked a particular a question a certain way, and I was asked it different. Um, those are things that as educators, we have to be really, really conscious of. Um, it, I have to say though, Audrey, it does bring me back to this idea of flow of the discourse though. Um, and the reason that it does is because here you and I are talking about the types of questions that are asked to a student. And I can't help but have my brain go back to like, okay, when is that happening? Mm -hmm. Is that happening in this public discussion that we're having? And it's making me slip back again to this wondering of like, is this again, the teacher and student having this, it's, it's kind of funny, isn't it? Yeah. It's like a public private interaction. <laughs> it's right. like, and, and it's like, everybody get your popcorn and watch like, Mr. Alcorn, myself, interacting with this one other student, and I'm either, again, judging performance, or maybe I am doing some scaffolding questions to that one student. Um, so it's kind of like this public tutoring and assessing uh, going on. 
And so I, I think that the questioning as we were talking about is so important, but I have to think about like, where is that happening? And, and how can there be more of a environment for everyone of challenge? But it, it takes me back to thinking about five practices and mm -hmm. thinking classrooms with Peter Lilliadal is, could those things happen as I'm visiting students working in smaller groups? And can I challenge those questions, ask those challenging questions to the whole group and to indiv individual students in that regard? In the five practices model, can I make sure that in my summarizing, when students are sharing and they're talking and challenging each other's ideas, can I, I sprinkle some questions in there? So it's not so much of this gotcha moment where I'm taking this public arena and um, firing a question toward a student in, in a way that could be uh, detrimental. Yeah, I appreciate you bringing up the five practices. You know, similarly, another connection, um, I was reading this week, Dear Math just came out, a oh, brand right, new yeah. book by Sarah mm -hmm. Strong and Gigi Butterfield. Um, and if you catch this podcast early enough that might still have a free download on Amazon, which you could get the book for free. Um, but they talk about um, in that book that, um, that Jeff Crawl, another math educator, um, ta was talking about like, what's next? Like, what's the mm. next iteration in the process of becoming more student-centered? Like we have five practices, Where what's beyond that where the teacher steps back even further, yeah. right? And it's more student-centered. And mm -hmm. so she has, um, uh, strategies that she calls the daily discourse you can read about, which is super interesting about student-led discussions, uh, seems a lot more like uh, Socratic seminars, if you're familiar with that in the secondary world. Uh, I know that Cassia Omohundro uh, and uh, Wedekin and Christy Herman Thompson also did this work with elementary focus uh, in a book called Hands Down Speak Out. So I think mm -hmm. that there's just um, there's probably further space to grow if this is a super interesting idea to you, like, um, or to our listeners, like, I think that you can push yourself to become as student centered in your discussions as right. you want. Right. And so I think there's steps at each step, you know, at each step of the way, if you're feeling like it's a ping pong match between you and a student and everyone else is watching, like, right. how do you increase it? Like you were describing with more students engaged in that conversation. How do you move to something like the five practices? If you're already like, I got the five practices, but I don't think I have it quite done. How do you move it further? Right. And so maybe one of those books might be an interesting space to think more about those strategies. Yeah, I think, I think those are good points, Audrey. It also makes me think about that I really believe that we can take what the authors here are, are, are teaching us about language and how important it is. And I think we can, we can change our instructional practices around to something more like a five practice model or more like a thinking classroom model. And we can still embrace the core message that the authors have for us. And so Audrey, I think that's what's exciting about, um, about this whole thing. Um, you know, uh, one of the other things that, um, uh, we should talk about Audrey is the, some strategies for enhancing discourse because I, I noticed that the authors did include some of those in our reading. Yeah, for sure. So there's a chart 9.4 that gives us um, four of them. And these come from uh, a whole list of colleagues, uh, including uh, Bill Zahner, who is local to us here in San Diego. Um, mm -hmm. So it's nice to see friends yep. names uh, listed experts uh, with their expertise. Um, and so they talk a little bit about uh, these four strategies around uh, eliciting, modeling, revoicing and then recognizing and valuing multiple responses. Did any of those stick out to you? 
Well, Audrey, I have to share, I had an aha, something I never thought about before. Oh, cool. <laughs> yeah. It, I thought about like revoicing and choral responses. Mm-hmm. And I, I thought about how like, they're kind of the opposites of each other. Oh, huh. Yeah. So yeah, here, okay. Stick with me on this. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if they're inverse operations, but okay. <laughs> but uh, here's here's what I'm thinking. You know, in revoicing, the teacher is going to repeat certain parts of student language, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that it, you know, when a student shares something, in a choral response, students repeat something that the teacher says, and um, uh, well, they actually response a uh, response to something that the teacher's asking. Yeah. So maybe it's not quite the same, but but I'm I'm seeing this sort of like um, there's there's a relationship between the two. Mm-hmm. But you know what I started thinking about is like are both of them equally valuable as instructional strategies, mm-hmm. and do both cultivate and continue and support learning? Because I'll be I'll be very honest with you, Audrey. I I I struggle a little bit with the choral responses in some of the sample lessons that we had in this chapter. Um, I definitely absolutely see the value of students rehearsing the language. That, that part makes complete sense to me. But then, but sometimes I know in my own classroom, uh, choral responses were tended to be the result of a guess what's in the teacher's head question that mm-hmm. I might ask. Like I'm asking a question where there really is only one response. And I'm just wondering like, how much thinking is going on when students call out these answers based on one of those low-level questions? And you, met, you mentioned Bill Zahner, and, and I'm, I'm really curious to ask him a little bit more about this in terms of um, the relationship between revoicing and choral responses. And even though they're very different and they, they involve different things, I, I, I wonder how they have some connections to each other. Uh, so it's definitely a topic I like to explore more and my initial thought is, is thinking about how the re- rehearsing of language could be separate from the type of question that we're using, but I, I'm not sure, Audrey. <laughs> yeah, I, I think that'd be super interesting. A core response is definitely not something you hear a lot of in the secondary classrooms. Um, and so it's, it's interesting to us to think about how that might need to be leveraged or, or maybe not. So that's super interesting. Um, just to close us out, you know, um, as we're finishing up here, you know, the authors offer these great reflection questions at the close of the chapter. Um, and so I'd just like to offer them to our, our listeners here. Um, the first one says, how does your discourse influence multilingual learners' mathematical practices in your classroom? Um, a chance to think about that. And maybe even watch, watch a, a video recording of yourself or listen to some audio of you uh, and consider that. Um, and then, you know, always thinking that we can do better. I appreciate that they ask us what changes would we make in, within the next year. Uh, thinking about those small things that we can do to be more intentional about our actions uh, and specific how we're positioning our multilingual learners for success. Great suggestions, Audrey. Thanks for joining us for this episode. In our next episode, we will chat about Chapter 10, Foster a Culture of Writing in the Mathematics Classroom. In the meantime, we'd love to hear your perspective about our discussion of chapter nine. Join the conversation on Twitter using the hashtag SumMathChat. That's hashtag S-U-M-M-A-T-H-C-H-A-T with your questions and thoughts. We'll keep the conversation going there. Until then, best wishes learning from bright spots. 